Welcome to Network Capital, Tripura Daman. Um, our networks, our worlds intersect in so many different ways. Um, I'm glad that you're finally here. We're going to talk about your book, your career. Tell us uh, what piques your curiosity and what do you do today? Uh, first, thank you so much for inviting me, Utkarsh. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, and I'm so glad that we are finally being able to do this. Uh, what piques my curiosity? That's, uh, uh, you're really throwing me into the deep end there. I think um, a lot of things pique my curiosity, but specifically, I think the past really uh, appeals to me um, in many ways. And uh, partly that is because, you know, it, uh, there's so much um, uh, there's so much of the present that really can be explained by reference to the past, or that can be understood by reference to the past. Uh, but also, secondly, I just find it interesting. I find the idea of, uh, uh, you know, going back to primary papers and digging through archives or sources. Uh, archives, of course, are only one kind of source, but uh, it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like piecing together a puzzle, being able to put together, uh, investigating um, a subject, being able to put together a narrative around it, uh, being able to um, argue out your point. Um, they kind of have a thrill of their own. And I, uh, I find that that really, really, really um, interests me. And it, it kind of, it's one of these things that gets your you know, adrenaline in pumping. Uh, and so for me, that's always been, uh, you know, this kind of thrill and I'm glad that I'm able to do it uh, professionally as well. So you've done something really interesting. You've made your passion your profession and uh, your curiosity is, uh, you know, what pays the bills as well. So tell us a bit mm -hmm. about your work. Uh, that's true. I've been very lucky to be able to do that. And uh, <clears throat> I started out studying uh, politics at the University of Warwick where I was an undergraduate. I then did a MPhil in South Asian studies at Cambridge. And during my MPhil, I got to know a very, um, uh, my supervisor, Sir Christopher Bailey, he was a sort of giant, uh, you know, of the field. And I got to know him and I worked on my MPhil thesis with him, which, um, uh, which you know, in, in some ways was quite a revelation because I'd never really done any primary research before, uh, you know, when you're an undergraduate, it's off you know, things are quite, quite sort of straightforward. And then he, uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I really like Cambridge. And he suggested, you know, why don't you think about a PhD? And uh, I thought, yeah, why not? It, you know, I'll, I'll, I'd have uh, four years to really think, to get to grips with my subject, to be in a place like Cambridge. Um, and so I did my PhD. It took longer than I'd anticipated because, um, you know, Chris passed away. But it really sort of ignited a, a, a kind of thrill uh, in me. It kind of ignited something in me that I had never quite had before. I'd always been interested in history, but uh, never in this sort of uh, research work and academic work. And I really loved it. I really enjoyed it. And uh, of course, um, it was a bit of an uphill struggle uh, once I finished my PhD, because of course, there's nothing you know, waiting at the end of the tunnel. You have this big moment where you achieve uh, something which is 
you know, you've finally written this 80,000, 100,000 word uh, piece of research, which is, you know, original and, and you often think of it and frame it and, you know, this is, you know, my life's work, but it's right. really not. And uh, it's only, I guess, once you, because it takes over your life. And then once you finish with it, you kind of realize, well, you know, that was that and what comes next and what comes next is a kind of quite grueling sort of time where uh, you really have to figure out what to do next because academic positions uh, research funding um, all of these things are you know few and far between and um, there are uh, you know there are probably 10 times as many candidates for anything as there are positions or as there are grants and so I had quite uh, I mean, but of course, everything's a matter of perspective, but uh, I had a slightly difficult sort of period year after I graduated, where I was kind of coming to grips with, uh, you know, what I should do. I, of course, uh, had at that point failed to get an academic position. Um, uh, I think I must have done at least something around the number of 40 to 50 applications, which were rejected from various places for uh, for funding grants, for you know, research fellowships, for lectureships, so on and so forth, and so I finally got. It was quite, uh, I would say, almost down and out. Where I considered, well, you know, maybe this isn't something that I can do, and maybe this isn't something for me. Uh, and then, um, by quirk of fate, I ended up meeting um, another very. Uh, 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 another mentor, should I say, um, which was Professor Maynard at uh, the School of Advanced Study. And uh, I told him about, you know, what I was doing. And he encouraged me to, to apply through the School of Advanced Study for a research grant. Uh, of course, he backed up my application. Uh, and the School of Advanced Study, of course, was <clears throat> happy to support my application. And that's how I got um, my uh, sort of first big um, research grant, which is the British Academy. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, that was that was really the start of it. So I'm, I'm still I'm still at the School of Advanced Study. I'm still a British Academy fellow there. And um, in that period, uh, uh, I've written um, three books, which have all, uh, you know, kind of done well in their own ways. And uh, it's been, of course, uh, in some senses, quite uh, hard work. But it's also been an exhilarating, uh, you know, journey of of sorts. Can you talk to us about uh, exhilaration and frustration and feeling dejected? Because uh, once you graduated and applied for 40, 50 positions, for whatever reason, they did not work out. I'm sure it wasn't mm -hmm. fun. So this is something that many of our uh, <laughs> yeah. folks from around the world can relate to. Talk to us how you figured out the next steps. Um. Well, there was, uh, I mean, partly, of course, for most people, this is how the journey works out. Uh, I mean, post-PhD is, um, uh, I think it's different in the sciences because there's more of, uh, your skills are quite easily transferable to, uh, you know, to other domains. Whereas uh, something like history is, um, while not domain specific, I mean, those skills uh, academic positions itself are few and far between, and uh, it doesn't, I mean, those are specialist skills, being able to, uh, you know, investigate something that deeply, being able to find your way through, find information, research, write, think critically. I mean, those are great skills, but 
uh, then often not really, uh, it's not a recognizable uh, sort of transition. So, you know, you will occasionally find uh, people who've done history PhDs, for example, going into consulting or, or something, but um, it's not as if anybody in the field of consulting will say, well, you know, you're, uh, you know, you have, uh, you have a set of skills that we, uh, that we value more than uh, anyone fresh out of university. So they will often go in, uh, you know, at the same level as someone fresh out of undergrad. And um, so for me, while I was uh, going through this uh, process of, you know, applying for academic positions and uh, research funding and all of these things, um, part of me was also thinking, well, you know, what really is the value of, uh, uh, of you know, the last five years that I've, uh, you know, been, been working on my PhD. And it, it kind of forces you to reflect both on your, uh, on how you define your own identity, because at some point, you know, you say, well, if I'm not an academic, who am I? What am I? Uh, and partly, uh, it also really puts everything into perspective because you could, what you imagined to be such a substantive piece of chunk of your life, uh, such a substantive piece of work could, you know, once you're done with it, uh, you look back and you're like, well, what value does it really have beyond the, you know, tiny niche uh, of um, academia? Uh, and for me, I think that was the most challenging part is to, uh, was to keep, uh, keep a strong sense of self while going through this process, because you often uh, end up questioning your choices, you question, uh, you know, the value of what you've done, uh, you question whether you're good enough to, uh, you know, to, to really step up, whether you're capable of stepping up to, uh, you know, beyond uh, beyond where you were. And um, so for, for me, that was th the most sort of challenging part was to continue to have faith in yourself and continue to value what you've done to think, well, mm. what you've done is a value and, you know, what you want to do is, you know, is also a value because once you have, you know, 30 rejection, 40 rejections, there's, uh, uh, there's no way that you, wouldn't question yourself. I mean, it would, uh, to me, it's quite, a, it's quite a normal thing. And there, of course, in my case, well, it worked out, but, uh, uh, or, you know, it worked out in a manner of speaking, I guess, but there was every possibility that it may not have worked out. Mm. And uh, to kind of be able to extricate yourself um, or step back enough to say, well, even if it doesn't work out, uh, what I've done is of value, and uh, you know there is um, there was nothing wrong with spending you know x number of time, uh, four years, five years doing something, uh, and there's also nothing wrong with uh, turning your back on what it was that was that you were passionate about or that you wanted to do in case uh, in case things just don't turn out that way, and uh, I guess it requires this ability to step back and think clearly. And I, uh, for me, that wasn't easy. Like it took me uh, quite a long time to be able to extricate myself uh, and what I thought I was or who I thought I was uh, from what I was doing. And that's what essentially created the space to be able to think clearly about the situation. 
And that objectivity led to the exhilaration, three books, uh, good recognition nationally, internationally. Talk to us about that feeling and also give us a flavor of the three books that you've written. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, being able to think, I guess, clearly, uh, I had also decided that, you know, I was going to give myself a certain amount of time. And uh, if things didn't uh, sort of work out within that time, uh, I was going to say, well, okay, you know, that's one part of my life over and we need to do something else. But luckily they did. And it was quite a cathartic feeling to be able to, uh, uh, to be able to do it, to be, to have gotten something because even though it's, we, we all know it's hit and miss. We all know that it's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, when you think about with something like these big grants, something like 5% of the applications are successful. So uh, hmm. you know that the odds are against you. Uh, and so it's no, it isn't a sort of honest reflection and everyone who's going up is, uh, you know, there's very little to choose from. Everybody's, you know, takes the boxes. Uh, and so even though you theoretically recognize that uh, this is not really a reflection on who you are and what you've done. It's still very cathartic to kind of get uh, get that sort of uh, recognition, to be able to tick that box, to say, okay, well, someone believes in your work enough that they're willing to fund it or they're willing to you know, take a punt on uh, what's going to come out of it. And so that was very, uh, very cathartic. And I was very conscious that uh, I needed to prove something both to, uh, of course, um, the world, but also to myself, having gone through that period of uh, self-doubt and uh, self-reflection, I felt, you know, it was up to me to, to really to produce something that would demonstrate, uh, especially to myself, that I was, uh, you know, up to the mark. And that's how my, uh, you know, that's how I started working on what eventually became uh, my second book. My first one uh, came out of my PhD. It was uh, reworking of my thesis. Uh, it's something that I'd uh, been, you know, working on for five, six years. So um, eventually, of course, uh, it, that's what became my first book. But my second book, uh, I took up only, uh, you know, about, a short while, maybe six, nine, nine months, I think, um, or a year before uh, I got the British Academy. And I took it up as a way of demonstrating to myself that I could produce um, a substantive, um, interesting, and a, 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 a piece of kind of historical research that would appeal to, uh, to a wide um, audience, both within uh, and beyond the academy. Because of course, while you're an academic, you uh, often kind of get trapped uh, in this setting where you're constantly only looking up to your peers and writing for them, taking feedback from them. And I was conscious that I wanted to do something, uh, you know, something more. And so as a method of really proving to myself, I started working uh, on this second book, uh, which eventually um, was published as 16 Stormy Days, the, um, the story of the First Amendment to the Constitution of India. And um, that uh, it, it actually did, uh, uh, the reception to it was uh, much, much better than I thought. 
uh, and it turned out to be both uh, critically and commercially successful. Um, you know, its readers liked it, uh, and um, it was uh, it, it was reviewed all over um, in most sort of outlets, uh, press outlets, magazines, newspapers, uh, academic journals, um, and so it it uh, to have seen that was, I guess, for me. Um, it was a method of proving to myself that I, you know, I was uh, up to the task, and I think um, it was kind of necessary for me to do it, uh, just as a way of exercising my own um, uh, my own demons and my own um, insecurities. And uh, after that, um, uh, it's uh, it it brought uh, you know in, in its in its uh, Trail came uh, a certain amount of recognition, uh, you know, invitations to speak at events, uh, appear on podcasts, uh, and um, there, yeah, I haven't, uh, I'd say I haven't sort of looked back from there. But it was um, while I was working on the book, I was very conscious that you know this was uh, um, a test that I'd set myself, and. Um, I had given myself again a kind of very short timeline of uh, about a year and a half to be able to uh, finish it. And um, it again was was very hard work to put uh, to put a book of that sort together within um, a period of about a year and a half. Uh, but uh, again, I uh, even though it it required uh, it effectively required me to. Uh, become a hermit and do nothing else but work for that period. Um, I think uh, it was it was justified to uh, you know I, I can justify well to myself seeing is what yeah. seeing is what the book has achieved. Um, and then the third one, of course, you know, I was uh, talking to one of my friends who is uh, uh, used to be at uh, the University of Leiden and. Uh, We've known each other since we were PhD students, and um, uh, a lot of our research interests overlap. And we thought it would be interesting uh, to, you know, uh, to write a book together. Uh, and um, that's uh, that's what we did. So it was it was born out of uh, this kind of quite uh, a, sh a shared curiosity and a shared interest um, with uh, with a close friend. And normally, it's always. Uh, you often think that um, one shouldn't write with friends because uh, there's the uh, there's the idea that you could rub each other up uh, the wrong way to such an extent that uh, you know your friendship may not survive. But luckily for us, it was the opposite. It sort of brought you both closer. Yeah, yeah, and it uh, it was we found the process of writing of actually uh, judging each other's work and you know commenting on what the other person had written, uh, actually quite fun. So is there a connecting thread between the three books, among the three books? Um, there is. So my, my first one, of course, dealt with, uh, uh, you know, these sort of quite localized princely polities in uh, 19th century India. And uh, part of the reason was that I had, uh, you know, I had, I had an interest in that period. And partly it was, of course, because my supervisor was the world's leading authority on, uh, you know, in in 18th and 19th century India. So it was uh, it it was born out of that. And but uh, by the time I finished, I realized that um, 
A, I, uh, I was slightly bored of uh, of uh, you know of the night of working on eighteenth and nineteenth century um, subjects, but B, because I had written about the ideas of sovereignty and uh, the concept of uh, law in the nineteenth eighteenth um, and nineteenth century, I actually got to see that became more interested in uh, in the subject uh, of the twentieth century. Just because, um, uh, you know, after I'd finished school, I toyed with the idea of doing law and of studying law. And uh, at that point, uh, of course, I decided against it. But, uh, and, you know, it's something that was just there in the back of my head. But working on the, um, on law as a concept in the 18th and 19th century India, it, it sort of really got me thinking and it got me reading around uh, questions about um, India's constitution and uh, you know what sort of thinking went into the making of it, and uh, that really led me uh, you know squarely, fairly and squarely into the mid twentieth century and the birth of uh, the Indian Republic, um, independence, and um, so that resulted in my second and my third books, which both uh, in some ways deal with that period and that subject. You're one of those people who've uh, built his category of one in connecting the dots like a contrarian. So there's a bit of uh, uh, going against the mainstream and trying to present an argument. And I saw that when you were discussing political figures. So do you want to give us a flavor of uh, the early days of writing, say the 16 stormy days, when you talk about a specific person, a specific mm -hmm. context, a specific period, how did that emerge? Uh, so for me, there were two, two reasons. One of course was that um, literature on the first amendment to the constitution was uh, uh, you know, quite rare. There are, um, maybe not not even really a handful of papers that have really been written on it. And so for me, it was a subject ripe for exploration and something that's had, you know, such huge consequences that people acknowledge in passing, but don't really want to touch upon because it's one of these slightly embarrassing moments in our history where, uh, which you aren't able to easily categorize or slot. And it's, the entire story in itself is so counterintuitive because first, uh, just the uh, fact that not that many people knew about it, uh, which was which I found puzzling given how uh, you know consequential it was. Uh, second, the fact that despite uh, knowing how consequential it was, um, the you know we'd had very little um, writing on it. Uh, you know, there are two or three academic papers and that's that's about it. And then third, it showed, the whole story really showed uh, things in a light that I hadn't expected. So, you know, as we know the pivotal figures in the story, there's Jawaharlal Nehru who's prime minister, uh, Ambedkar who's law minister, um, Shah Prasad Mukherjee who's leader of opposition, um, uh, Geotram Kriplani, who's then leaving the Congress, uh, former Congress president, leaves the Congress in its first sort of uh, uh, flash of power. Um, so there, it's a very interesting cast of characters, and everything that they say and do is quite counterintuitive. It's what you wouldn't expect. It's what uh, 
their present um, images sort of don't convey, uh, which is, uh, you know, Nehru, um, whose current image is that of a sort of genteel patrician uh, liberal, uh, Mukherjee, whose image is of, uh, you know, as the founder of the Bharatiya Jansang, later the BJP, as someone who is uh, sort of unabashed Hindu nationalist, the progenitor, if one might call it, of, uh, um, of the current BJP. Um, Ambedkar, who's, uh, you know, again, seen as the sort of father of constitutionalism. Uh, and everyone's actions there sort of, in, its, in a way, kind of challenge uh, current day assumptions. Uh, and the entire um, story just sort of, it's, uh, I, I just found it as the deeper I went into it, uh, the more exciting I found it because um, it everything just moves so fast. Uh, people, um, everything happens within a span of you know, just over 16 months. And uh, it's it was such a dramatic episode that I was surprised that no one else really uh, thought that it, it merited a book length treatment um, in itself. And um, given that there was none, I felt, you know, well, here's a niche that I can fill. And here's a story that I think is worth uh, putting the trouble, uh, you know, worth putting effort into because it's, um, it was, it's not just exciting and it's not just illuminating, but it's also relevant to current day concerns, questions about freedom of speech and, you know, all of these things which, um, in India, especially, I've uh, in the last few years kind of really, uh, really caught people's attention, and um, so all of those threads really came together, and it was in some ways a quirk of fate, I guess, that um, uh, that I that I ended up working on it. Yeah, and you're able to um, connect the dots between personalities, ways of working, about the Indian mindset. So tell us a bit about uh, Nehru from your point of view. A lot of our community members uh, may not be Indian. Uh, mm -hmm. They would need more of an orientation. Those from India would, or the South, uh, South Asian region would be familiar. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, just a quick uh, sort of aside on connecting the dots is that's actually what makes historical research so interesting is this... Um, uh, you know, it's it's like, uh, in a sense, it's like being Sherlock Holmes. You go and you pick up clues, you pick up material, you pick up uh, things, but in and of themselves, they're just, uh, you know, they're just clues. They're just sort of pieces of information. And to be able to fit it together, uh, in a sense, in a broad-based narrative uh, is uh, is what, you know, makes, makes it appealing to me. And so that's a book that I... Can also say that I really enjoyed uh, enjoyed writing. Uh, coming to Nehru, Nehru of course was India's first prime minister, um, and by virtue of being the first prime minister, he uh, you know also has an overwhelming presence uh, in the Indian consciousness. He um, in effect shaped the Indian Republic, and um, given that he had as much of a blank slate as it's possible to have in history. Uh, you know, he really uh, laid the foundations of, uh, of Indian democracy. And so, of course, he's revered um, for being the father of Indian democracy, for being, uh, you know, setting up the Indian Republic, um, more or less being one of the big influences that shaped the constitution, 
And then after that, as India's uh, first prime minister and India's longest serving prime minister, I think, um, he uh, really guided the destinies of, uh, uh, of an entire subcontinent, more or less. Um, so his influence, like his imprint on India is so, so strong that uh, he defines the sort of center point of India's political spectrum. So every uh, everything else is kind of defined in degrees of divergence uh, from Nehru. And so when I started looking at the First Amendment, a very different uh, side to Nehru started appearing um, to me. And Nehru in contemporary discourse is often uh, first pitted against um, the sort of current uh, Indian government, which is seen to be anti-Nehruvian in a sense, to try and roll back everything that Nehru had stood for, which was uh, uh, widely credited to, to be, you know, sort of a relatively liberal constitution, um, a freedom of speech, uh, Indian secularism, and you know, so on and so forth. But uh, the story of the First Amendment clearly brings out that there was a lot more to Nehru as well. And he was, uh, you know, a communitarian. Uh, he was uh, someone who was, um, you know, impatient at many times with democratic procedure. Uh, he was someone who believed that the sort of wider uh, social interest or what he saw to be the wider social interest uh, as represented by, um, uh, you know, the uh, those sitting in the legislature uh, should really trump constitutional provisions and uh, also to be able to achieve the ends for which he believed his government had been set up, he was willing to, uh, in a sense, um, amend constitutional provisions, provisions which at that point were just about a year old. And this was no storm in a teacup, as one might say, but something that aroused uh, you know, a profound pushback from, uh, uh, from the opposition. And I don't just mean the parliamentary opposition, uh, I also mean, uh, you know, op organizations such as the um, All India Newspaper Editors Conference, the Federation of the Indian Chambers of Commerce and Industry, um, the bar associations, um, and so on and so forth. And um, it's interesting that this episode didn't get uh, a sort of book-length treatment, primarily because... <clears throat> Given what India was uh, at that point, it didn't. It hadn't even had its first election. Um, it's often assumed that this was uh, just a sort of intra-elite sort of squabble. That this was just, uh, you know, the top echelons of um, of Indian society kind of having a fight amongst themselves. Which, in some senses, maybe it was. <laughs> but um, it's interesting to see that, despite the fact it didn't attract even when it happened that, you know, it was not an issue of great public concern, um, we still had uh, these sort of institutional checks and balances, you know, an opposition that was willing to take such a firm stand in parliament or newspaper editors that were willing to sort of raise their heads above the parapet to kind of oppose uh, a government measure or something like the chambers of commerce and industry where, uh, you know, now it's often just assumed that um, businessmen toe the government line and don't really risk political blowback. But it's interesting to see just what was possible in, um, in 1950, 1951. And I think um, that really 
for me, that was uh, one of the things that really, uh, you know, was worth bringing to light. Hmm. And you do. You do force the reader to reconsider uh, many opinions, many facts, and you're able to actually surprisingly paint a picture of a Nehru that is uh, different from what people would have read about. Did that shock you? when you were reading it, because you also grew up in a reading the same books, I would imagine in school and mm -hmm. college or having similar conversations, or uh, was that something that you were acquainted with? Um, it did surprise me. I mean, I was acquainted with certain elements of it by virtue of having, uh, you know, read a lot more of him than I guess the average person, uh, because, uh, you know, because I, I, I was studying um, politics and then history. And you can sense that, of course, that uh, Nehru was quite a contradictory figure in some senses. Um, but, uh, and uh, of course, it was well known that he was, uh, and, you know, he wrote about it himself, that he was someone who was impatient, he had a bit of a, a temper, he, you know, uh, was slightly authoritarian in outlook. Um, and those were things he wrote about himself. So, you know, he didn't seek to hide them either. But it's only when you put the whole story together that you appreciate just what, you know, saying those things meant. And for me, it was very surprising to, I guess, um, um, I wouldn't say shocking because I kind of expected it, but I didn't expect it to the extent that it became apparent. Hmm. So uh, what made the 16 stormy days stormy? Were they discussions about the future of India? To give us a flavor. So, um, well, 16, the stormy days refers to the 16 days of debate that happen in parliament when the amendment is brought, um, uh, is presented um, to them. And the reason, well, of course, the debates themselves are stormy, but a very interesting episode happens during uh, the debate, which is uh, at some point, um, uh, after Nehru has presented the amendment, a, uh, an opposition figure called Naziruddin Ahmad is speaking. Uh, he is, of course, tremendously critical. He's savaging the bill. And just as he's doing it, <coughs> a storm hits New Delhi. <coughs> and um, the storm hits so suddenly, and there's a newspaper report saying, you know, the storm hits so suddenly that actually they don't have enough time to close the skylights and the windows and uh, things in parliament. And um, so, you know, you, uh, several members get drenched in the rain, but also the, uh, you know, there's a power cut. And so the chamber is plunged into darkness. <coughs> Sorry. And um, as that happens, uh, an opposition figure, actually he's not even an opposition figure, he's a dissident congressman, um, H.V. Kamath, he gets up and he says, well, uh, freedom of speech is being taken away and, you know, there's a storm over it. And it's one of these kind of quite, um, I guess, evocative moments uh, during the debate and during the story that I thought, uh, you know, it was really, um, it, was, it, it was a really kind of good example of uh, what was going on. And I think the metaphor was just too good to, you know, to let go. And I agree. So that uh, that really that's how I came up with the title. So um, 
you're saying that the freedom of expression, freedom of speech was being curtailed in, yeah. by the way. And uh, what made you come to that conclusion? And how do you think it has altered the freedom of uh, speech discussions today? I think that's not a conclusion that just I came to. That was a conclusion that, uh, you know, uh, even those who were opposing the amendment had come to. And uh, of course, that's because what Nehru had proposed to do, and of course what he did was to uh, increase the grounds under which uh, laws curtailing the freedom of speech could be um, could be passed. So originally the constitution had only envisaged, uh, uh, um, uh, had set the bar quite high um, and which included, I think, libel, slander, contempt of court, um, and uh, anything that undermined or the security of the state or tended to overthrow it. Now, what that had done is that had made it impossible for the government to use the various public safety acts to prosecute, uh, to uh, to ban magazines, to uh, you know, um, subject them to censorship, uh, and so on and so forth. And on the other hand, equally, it had uh, ensured that. <clears throat> the law of sedition, which they often use to um, arrest people uh, saying inconvenient things, was um, had been made unconstitutional. And uh, you had a series of cases over 1950 uh, that kind of uh, reinforced this situation. So every time the government, uh, the government famously arrested Tara Singh of uh, the Akali Dal for sedition, mm -hmm and um, the court let him go by saying, well, sedition, um, section 124A of the penal code, which, uh, you know, which is sedition, is basically unconstitutional. And this also happened with uh, when they tried to censor uh, the organizer, which is the RSS news magazine, or they tried to ban Crossroads, which was a sort of left-leaning uh, weekly published from Bombay. And um, so, uh, the courts kind of made it apparent that freedom of speech was quite expensive, uh, that the bar which needed to be crossed uh, for legislation to, you know, to curtail it was really high. And the government uh, basically then felt that actually things are moving um, out of control, that there was, uh, in a sense, um, too much freedom. And so what the amendment did was that it introduced um, several new grounds uh, under which freedom of speech could be curtailed, which included public order. Uh, and more disingenuously, uh, it changed the phrase, uh, anything that tended to, that undermined the security of the state or uh, tended to overthrow it. That phrase was changed to um, anything in the interests of the security of the state. So uh, you no longer had needed, some, something merely had to be in the interest of the state's security uh, uh, for there to be a law prescribing it, uh, uh, prescribing freedom of speech or curtailing freedom of speech, it no longer needed to, you know, undermine the state security or bring it to a point where the state might be overthrown. So, uh, you know, the Overton window, in a sense, was kind of widened considerably uh, uh, by this amendment. And uh, this is this makes you think about the current political climate. Do you think so? Yeah, I mean, it has uh, it has quite uh, eerie echoes, in a sense, from uh, of the current political climate, because actually at that point, 
those who were the most vociferous opponents of this amendment, uh, which was S.P. Mukherjee and uh, uh, also parts of the RSS, um, are now in power. And um, those who are now at the receiving end of the kind of legal architecture that this amendment uh, allowed are uh, now in the opposition. Hmm. And um, it's interesting to note that um, while the sides have changed, um, the language that's deployed uh, really hasn't. So from the government side, you still get the language of, well, uh, you know, the state's under threat, uh, or, you know, there's too much freedom, or freedom of speech is being abused, because of uh, it. I sort of, uh, I'll give you a quick example is, uh, when Nehru speaks in Parliament, he uh, one of the things he's really upset about is fake news. And he says, you know, it's really difficult to determine which news is real, which news is fake. And think of uh, uh, <clears throat> think of the effect this fake news will have on, uh, you know, on our farmers and on our soldiers and, uh, you know, on our young people and so on and so forth. And um, it's interesting to see that those are similar concerns that are being, uh, being deployed now. It's just that those who were in uh, uh, in power are now in the opposition, and those who were then in the opposition are now in power. <coughs> the funny thing is that at the end of the debate, Nehru, um, you know, describes uh, the amendment as a gift that he's leaving for the succeeding generations, and um, to and he's warned at that point by uh, S. V. Mukherjee, who says, "Well, you know, it's." possible that you might, you and your succeeding generations might, you know, might rule for eternity, but uh, you should stop and think about what will be the consequence of what you're doing in case someone else comes into power. And of course, at that point, uh, no one imagines anyone else coming into power and um, that warning is brushed aside. And then now, about six months ago for, I remember for some, I'm not quite sure for what, but uh, one of the BJP leaders had uh, had declared that they were going to file a thousand sedition cases against um, Congress leader Rahul Gandhi. Mm. And to me, that was just such an instructive moment to see how things had kind of turned, you know, after going through 360 degrees had come back to the same point because there was uh, <clears throat> 75, 70-odd years ago, 72 years ago, really, there was um, uh, Rahul Gandhi's great-grandfather um, describing it as a gift for the succeeding generations. Uh, and to me, it was just uh, so surreal to see, uh, you know, how while history, uh, I wouldn't say history repeats itself, I would say just, you know, how history sort of rhymes with the present. Yeah. I don't want to speculate and I don't want you to go into Nehru's mind, but could you attempt to explain the rationale or the thought process about what might Nehru be thinking around that time and what were the kinds of uh, people who were opposing his points of view on this particular subject and why weren't they listened to or why didn't they emerge uh, victorious in those arguments? I mean, I don't have to speculate because there's a whole, I mean, there's a lot of literature around it because they uh, they do discuss why, why they're doing this. And for Nehru, I think the Trump card was the fact that uh, 
uh, you know, he A felt that he needed uh, uh, these laws to sort of protect his government against what he called bullying, uh, which was that a lot there was uh, at that point in time there had been uh, uh, quite a lot of disturbance in uh, what was then East Pakistan uh, and a lot of refugees had uh, come into India and so you know there'd been a lot of protests and a lot of public outcry against the government's attitude uh, a lot of people both within and outside the Congress had been trying to pressurize Nehru into uh, you know into taking stern action against Pakistan which is something that he didn't want to do and to be able to, I guess, in a way, clamp down on that line of thought, he, uh, you know, he, he needed legal tools. And so that was one of the main reasons that was driving him in the context of freedom of speech. Another big question of the, for the amendment was uh, Zamindari abolition, which Nehru believed had been, uh, was potentially under threat. It actually wasn't, and uh, many people, uh, including the president, Rajendra Prasad, kind of pointed out that uh, you know, there was no real threat to Zamindari abolition. Uh, but for Nehru, it was a matter of principle saying, well, you know, we got elected promising this. We've been promising this for you know, 20, 30 odd years. And we can't now hold back by saying what we promised was against the constitution, is you know, unconstitutional. So the constitution uh, in that sense, and he makes the claim and he says it uh, you know, to the press, that the legislature is what decides on policy and uh, they represent the will of the people and you know in that sense the constitution cannot come uh, you know cannot be an impediment to uh, to to something like this it's a very i would say unusual position to take uh, in the context of a constitution that is um, you know uh, written and uh, so long, you know, it, it codifies things to such an extent that it, it shouldn't normally uh, leave room for this sort of an argument to be made, but he makes it nevertheless. Um, and I think uh, it's, it's, just, it's a, just a matter of expediency because at some point you come under a lot of pressure and you say, well, the easiest thing for me would be if the constitutional provisions themselves, which is different. And um, he decides to go ahead and do it. And he has the there's there's no doubting that he has the parliamentary support because the measure uh, you know is passed ultimately, and um, it's also held to be uh, legal by the Supreme Court. And of course, it never really figures in in the election that happens after, uh, which probably would, in my mind, imply that uh, first people didn't really care that much, and second that even if they had, they probably would have supported Nehru anyway, given. Uh, the sort of overwhelming adulation that he uh, commanded. Now, the people who oppose him are a more interesting bunch because they come from quite a wide spectrum of political opinion. There are uh, what might be called figures of the Hindu right, people like S.P. Mukherjee uh, and um, M.R. Jaikar, who had previously been the Mahasabha president, uh, N.C. Chatterjee, who had previously been, I think, Hindu Mahasabha president as well. And then you had uh, sort of remnants of what had been the Gandhian faction in the Congress, um, people like uh, Acharya Kriplani. And then you have uh, effectively socialists like uh, Jay Prakash Narayan, SN Saxena, and, or, uh, and these people. Uh, you have 
the few liberals that there were, people like Kunzru. And on top of that, you have these civil societies organizations, as I mentioned, the newspaper editors, uh, bar associations, um, uh, the chambers of commerce and industry. So you have quite a wide spectrum of opinion that uh, uh, that kind of comes together to oppose Nehru's amendment. Uh, ultimately, they're not successful, and I think um, it's it's you see it during the debates, of course, that they don't have enough parliamentary or street power to really change the course of um, uh, of uh, you know of the amendment itself. And for Nehru, of course, there are three things: they represent shades of opinion that he doesn't quite have time for. So he doesn't have time for uh, uh, <coughs> sort of Hindu right. He doesn't have time for old school uh, traditional liberals. Um, he doesn't really have time for the more radical socialists. And um, um, he also doesn't really, he, he thinks the sort of Chambers of Commerce and Industry uh, um, and Newspaper Editors Conference, et cetera, represent a kind of conservative opinion, uh, uh, remnants of what, what he might call a static age. Mm -hmm. And so um, he is quite confident that, you know, he has the masses with him. Uh, he is quite confident of getting the amendment through. He isn't really thinking about the long-term consequences, partly because uh, maybe he doesn't think that they are going to materialize. Partly, um, he's also not thinking about the precedence that he's laying. Um, again, one can't say whether he's thinking about it and ignoring it or just not thinking about it at all. Uh, and partly, it's also expediency. You know, there's an election coming up. They need to, they've been promising something to uh, the electorate. They want to get it through. Uh, and Nehru ultimately says, well, you know, you should trust parliament, you should trust us. And, um, you know, that's <clears throat> ultimately the amendment is passed. And uh, in a nutshell, I think the reason they weren't listened to, uh, the opponents weren't listened to was uh, that there was no real need to do it. It was perfectly possible to ignore them. Do you think India would be very different today had that amendment not been passed? Oh, yes, yes, uh, very much so. I mean, I'm maybe someone else would have passed it, uh, or uh, maybe not one, you know, that's an open question. But if the Constitution had stayed as it is, and if, say, for example, um, you know, sedition had never really been uh, brought back onto the books as it was, or uh, freedom of uh, the threshold for laws curtailing the freedom of speech had continued to remain that high. Uh, I think you know India would be in a much uh, Indian democracy would be uh, would be significantly more um, secure, but it's also possible to argue at the equal point that actually you know well uh, you know the state would have been threatened and you know this, the government might have splintered and so on and so forth. Uh, I'm sure it is possible to argue those points, but um, personally I believe that. Uh, uh, that we would have been much better off. Let's look at the fact that uh, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru is uh, the architect or one of the principal architects of the Indian democracy. Your yeah. work seems to suggest that uh, the report card is not all glowing A's. There are mm -hmm. some less uh, you know, glowing numbers somewhere in between. 
Uh, overall, if you when you look at him on these points, um, do you think that he was acting because he was a person looking for an outcome and he made a mistake visualizing what the future might turn out? Or was there this dictatorial impulse in him as is there in many you know, powerful men, quote unquote? Or is there uh, something else? Was India at a time where a lot needed to be done in a short amount of time? So a non-ideal solution, but a practical one was taken. Which of these options makes sense, if any? I mean, there's something to be said for all of them, uh, right? <clears throat> and of course, the first is he believed that a lot needed to be done. Uh, and he believed he was the one uh, who was going to be doing it. And so uh, this was a kind of shortcut that, um, and again, he says it, uh, he keeps repeating uh, himself when he says, uh, you know, we don't have time, we don't have time. Uh, and so for him, of course, that's one consideration that they don't have that time, he needs to get a lot done. Uh, this is an easy sort of way to cut through uh, what might otherwise be legal and constitutional complications. Uh, and he does it and he does it not just with the amendment, he does it, for example, by using uh, uh, an instrument like, which is the ordinance, which is only supposed to be used in, uh, you know, unusual times. Uh, and he uses it to bypass sort of leg normal legislative process pretty quite often to an extent where even the speaker, the first sort of speaker of parliament, G.V. Um, <coughs> Mavlankar, makes it a point to write to him and, you know, complain about uh, how parliament is being sidelined. So that's, of course, one reason. The second is that mm -hmm. it was in his eyes and undoubtedly in the eyes of many others, uh, just a, a, a sort of completely justified measure as well. So it's not as if he was, uh, uh, you know, he was alone in doing this. He was ultimately, there was a cabinet committee. Uh, there was um, a parliament that voted on it. Um, so, you know, he was, uh, even though he was opposed by large sections of public opinion, um, one could say that actually a lot of the parliamentary majority was behind him. So, you know, he's not, uh, he's not the only one who thinks that it's um, that what he's doing is justified. And then, uh, lastly, I think um, partly because he's thinking of the present and of the short term so much, he is either ignoring uh, or just not really, uh, in a sense, thinking about um, what the long term consequences are. Now, this is slightly. Uh, I don't buy this point to its entirety because he is being warned uh, against what the long-term consequences might be. So everyone who speaks is constantly telling him, you know, look, these are what the long-term consequences are likely to be. Uh, it's going to cause you, uh, you know, cause the country a lot of problems at some point. Uh, but he he kind of ignores it. And I think he ignores it, A, because he doesn't quite uh imagine another dispensation or another ideological orientation coming to power but be also just because uh the question of precedent um given how much of the westminster system rests on precedence and convention uh, and he as india's first prime minister you know of a newly found democracy 
is laying a precedent, creating conventions by everything that he does. Uh, and I don't think he's completely aware uh, about the fact that uh, a precedent laid today might come back to haunt you, you know, 25 years later. Mm. And um, that's also perfectly, uh, in a sense, it's understandable because if you imagine someone who is more or less running a one-man show, uh, who's being pressed from all sides with, you know, the problems that a newly democratic, newly independent country is facing, uh, it's in a sense understandable that the short term would continue to occupy his mind to a large extent. Um, what's not understandable is why the long-term concerns would kind of be brushed aside in so cavalier a manner. It would be one thing if you kind of took them on board and said, look, here's a reason why I don't think these will materialize. But uh, he doesn't do that. He kind of brushes them aside in quite cavalier a manner. So um, ultimately, it's hard to boil anything down to one reason. Uh, but I do think all of these reasons have, uh, you know, have something going for them. We're not interested in politics here on Network Capital. We're, we're interested in careers and leadership styles. Would you say that uh, Mr. Modi and Mr. Nehru have commonalities in leadership styles and execution strategies? Yes, yes, very much so. Uh, I mean, for starters, both run what could be called one-man shows. Uh, you know, Nehru's, one of Nehru's biographers, um, S. Gopal, who was, who had, uh, you know, uh, who watched Nehru very carefully, uh, who'd been a close companion through much of his life, uh, described him, uh, described India's government as a one-man show with Nehru as its sort of thaumaturgic personality. And one could say, um, he also described Nehru's cabinets as a collection of mouldering mediocrities. Uh, and um, well, that's I guess- quite something. <laughs> he was, yeah, quite stark. Gopal didn't, uh, um, Gopal didn't uh, shy away from using strong words, but uh, something broadly similar could also be said um, for uh, for Modi and the sort of current uh, dispensation. Because if anything, Modi kind of towers above his uh, his cabinet and his party in a way that very few leaders have um, have been able to do. And beyond that, there's also um, uh, th there are other similarities. I mean, uh, they both have, uh, they're both centralizers. Uh, they both believe in a kind of, um, uh, in executive authority, uh, in the centralization of power, um, in, um, uh, for both questions of communitarianism, uh, 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 kind of Trump questions of individual rights. Uh, both um, are apt to deploy this trope of the state being under threat. Uh, and uh, both for that matter uh, have in a sense, um, a desire, a very strong open desire to leave uh, a kind of deep imprint on history to to remake the country in uh, in line with uh, with with their own visions, and 
um, I think that's, you see that both in the importance, for example, both of them give to foreign policy, to uh, to to traveling uh, the world, to to kind of their image as global statesmen, um, and to uh, a question of constructing like physical buildings. Uh, they're important to uh, to both of them as kind of uh, a, a physical visual interpretation of their uh, their terms in power, and your. Uh, and the uh, the kind of modernity that they seek to uh, project, and so I think these are some quite obvious uh, similarities um, that 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 you know you'll see in the styles mm. of leadership that both uh, uh, for both Nehru and Modi. Yeah, I I wouldn't say you are a critic of uh, Mr. Nehru. You're interested also in giving him credit where it's due, and. Uh, I'd love for you to give us uh, some points where Mr. Nehru meaningfully contributed to the India that we know today. And I'd love for you to conclude today's session with uh, also telling us points in which you've changed your mind about Nehru over the years. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a critic of Nehru either. And um, I guess there are so many people writing uh, uh, you know, writing what is effectively a glorification of Nehru and Nehruvianism that I do think in certain cases a pushback is required. But saying that, um, there are there are plenty of ways in which Nehru has contributed to, um, uh, to, to the making of Indian democracy. And I'll start out with Indian democracy itself. If you compare Nehru with his uh, compatriots across the uh, post-colonial world, <clears throat> Indian democracy is an outlier. All of them uh, at some point or another ultimately say, well, power lies, sovereignty lies beyond parliament, beyond constitution, beyond the sort of institutions of government. Uh, and so all of them ultimately uh, can't work within democratic constraints. Uh, Sukarno, Nkrumah, um, Nasser, you take, you know, you take all of uh, Nehru's compatriots. So <clears throat> the fact that we had a democratic transition from Nehru is probably the biggest uh, compliment uh, that he could be paid. Because here was a man who could, should he have wanted, assume dictatorial power. Uh, he pushes the envelope but he never quite tears it up. And that to me is, uh, is, is a huge thing because you know ultimately the temptation for absolute power is always there. And of course you can argue that Nehru had no reason to, uh, you know, to go for that because uh, he was getting what he wanted within the democratic setup. Uh, and should push come to shove, he could of course utilize tools as he did with the first amendment, for example. Uh, to get what he wanted. And that's also a legitimate argument, but I think there is a lot to be said for the fact that Nehru constructed and then bequeathed a relatively functioning democracy um, to his successors. So that is one huge thing. The other thing was that Nehru was extremely fastidious with his work. So at no point, uh, e even if you see with the First Amendment, it's hurried through 
but you know there's no uh, all procedure is adhered to you know there is a cabinet committee there is a select committee for parliament that looks through it uh, parliament votes on it clause by clause so Nehru is very fastidious uh, in his work he is dedicated to process uh, even though he has around him as Gopal says moldering mediocrities uh, he's quite insistent that, you know, cabinet meets as it's supposed to, select committees meet as they're supposed to, paperwork is done as it's supposed to. Uh, his commitment to, I guess, process is something that I really, really admire. And uh, lastly, of course, is uh, the fact that Nehru had a, uh, he had a very childlike curiosity about the world. And um, this curiosity, in a sense, uh, is one trait that I really, really admire about him. He never, you know, when he writes Discovery of India, for him, very, it is very much, uh, India is very much something that he set out to discover. And he, you know, this sense of curiosity never leaves him. He's always, uh, uh, in a sense, learning, uh, always, uh, you know, seeking to engage with the outside world with the idea that there is something to learn and there's something to understand. And, um, for nation building that, of course, you saw that uh, in, uh, in the sort of great educational institutions that he set up. And uh, I think those, again, are testament to the position that knowledge and learning had in his mental makeup, uh, because, uh, of course, looking back, one might argue that, you know, he neglected primary education, and these were all elite setups uh, for the Indian bourgeoisie to kind of replicate itself. And those are all legitimate arguments. But it's also worth thinking about the fact that, uh, you know, he could also have gone completely the other way. He could have said, well, you know, education is not the most important thing. The most important thing is <clears throat> building up an army, uh, or, you know, something like that, as many of his um, uh, compatriots again did. And uh, those are those are all things that I, you know, that I that I really admire about him. And I think those are huge contributions to uh, to the making of the Indian nation. Yeah. And what have you changed your mind about? Um, what I've changed my mind about really is, um, uh, is actually Nehru's relationship um uh with with his compatriot with uh, other indian political leaders and i think there um uh through particularly through the process of working on my third book with my friend adil uh it was quite instructive for me to see his uh, his sort of engagement with um uh, with uh, Iqbal, with Jinnah, uh, with Iqbal and Jinnah especially, because I'd always had uh, the impression that Nehru was, uh, while he was willing to engage um, with his uh, colleagues, with his opponents, a lot of it I thought was often uh, driven by necessity rather than uh, any uh, investment in what might come out of that engagement. So uh, uh, in that, I didn't think it was, um, I didn't think it was always in good faith, but actually I have revised my revised that assessment because looking at his engagement in the 1930s, uh, before he achieves this sort of executive power, you see that actually Nehru is quite, uh, in a sense, lawyer-like in trying to find uh, uh, some sort of common ground and a, 
method of moving forward, both with Iqbal uh, and with Jinnah. And he has no need to. He can perfectly well, uh, with Iqbal, it's on a question, <coughs> on a question of Islamic theology. It's on a question of, you know, the, starts off with, you know, what is the status of MDs within Islam? And of course, it then expands to, you know, the role of religion in, in public life uh, itself. But, uh, you know, Nehru is in jail. He has no real need to engage with someone like Iqbal, where there's, you know, very little uh, meeting ground in itself. But he still does it. And I think that uh, there's, uh, it really shows the kind of good faith uh, interaction that he believes can, in a sense, lead to a way of working together and finding a, uh, you know, a road forward. Awesome. Tripur Daman, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't, or any parting thoughts that you'd like to share with our community? No, I'd just like to thank you for inviting me. It's been, uh, you know, it's been a great pleasure. And um, it's, it's especially, uh, you know, great to be able to uh, talk about my own intellectual journey in the context of, uh, uh, of, you know, of the work that I'm doing, because, you know, we always, generally, I always talk about Nehru and about the constitution and so on and so forth. And it's nice to uh, be able to slot myself into, uh, into my own work. And, you know, thank you very much.